0: What's up, everybody? Before I start the show, I just wanted to let you know that my Patreon is now live. There's a link in the show notes there if you want to go and check it out. I have a bunch of great bonus content available for you to enjoy. I've got access to my notes. I have some really fun mini shows where I talk about random thoughts to do with the Wheel of Time. If you are interested in first-time readers, my wife is now reading The Eye of the World, and I've got some fun recordings about that, so if you want to know about her obsession with Tom Marilyn, I've got all of that and more. So if you want to look and see what kind of content I've got there and you're interested in supporting the show, that would be really cool. I've got lots of fun stuff for you. And as far as my regular content, I'm pretty pleased with how this current episode came out, and I really do think that you'll enjoy it. The stone won't fall until the podcast of the dragon comes to your device. Hey, everybody, my name is Morgan. You might know me as the Grey Warder on Twitter and Discord. Welcome to the 18th episode of Podcast of the Dragon. Happy spring, everybody. It's nice to be back. I've had a restful and productive hiatus, and I am ready to dig into the Dragon Reborn. First things first, let's look at Perrin. Thoughtful, responsible Perrin who minds his own business and doesn't make a fuss and is so unassuming you wouldn't even know he's Tverrin. At least until he makes a giant mess by freeing an Aiel and killing white cloaks and forcing everyone to flee in the night and managing to pick up a girlfriend in the process. The Dragon Reborn, in my humble opinion, is simultaneously one of the best Wheel of Time books and one of the worst. It has gaping plot holes, serious narrative errors, things that don't make any fucking sense and never get explained. Women are able to find Moraine, they wander into the mountains and just know that she'll be there when there is absolutely no fucking way that they could, and it is never explained And unlike much of the stuff that RJ doesn't explain, there's no reasonable thing that it could possibly be. Like, there's plenty of unexplained stuff that I can sit down and ponder and come up with a pretty good canon for based upon the rules of his universe. I can't for that shit. I cannot figure out how those women can get into the mountains and find her and just know. We get more thoroughly introduced to dreams and dreaming. You learn that powerful channelers' dreams can affect people around them and see entire cities affected by Forsaken who don't ward their dreams. But we never hear about that again after this book. And it's utterly illogical because the wise ones don't shield their dreams, sea folk don't shield their dreams, and novices and accepted in the White Tower don't shield their dreams. Egwene, as a dreamer and a very powerful channeler, should have had her unwarded dreams fucking with other people all of the time if the rest of the series followed the rules that we learn in this book. And maybe once R.J. realized that, he just decided to pretend that it wasn't a thing anymore. There are just a number of things in this book that really don't hold water in the general canon of the series and they never get satisfactorily resolved or they just absolutely go against what we know to be true, such as when the Aiel kneel to Rand at the end of the book when the stone falls. We know that they would not do that because the Karakarn is not a wetlander king. This book just has a lot that doesn't make sense or add up or hold water. Some people take issue with The Dragon Reborn because they think that it's really slow to start and they find the beginning parent chapters to be interminably boring. I personally think that it has moments of poor writing. There are a handful of expository dumps that make me want to tear my hair out and there are some paragraph and sentence transitions that hurt me deep deep inside. That said, it's not like any of the Wheel of Time books are without flaws when it comes to the pure technicality of the writing, and all three of the first books suffer with issues when it comes to plot and things not making total sense or things never being satisfactorily explained. And the bottom line is that The Dragon Reborn is one of the most entertaining Wheel of Time books. Once the chases get going, once the action gets kicked off, Once they start looking for Rand, once the Supergirls get tasked with hunting after the Black Aja. once we get inside Matt's head for the first time and get to see who he really is, the way that he looks at the world, which is just pure excitement and action and impulsivity and just fun. Matt is just fun. This book is this great rush down this hill toward this really amazing climax. It feels like it ski jumps off into Tyr and everybody just cannonballs into the stone, and it has one of the most entertaining culminations of the entire series. I've heard people hate on this book because it's The Dragon Reborn, and The Dragon Reborn is barely in it. But personally, I love that. I think that it is the correct name for the book Where the Stone Falls. That is the one prophecy above all others that makes it very clear to the world that the dragon is reborn. And so it is logical that the book where that event happens is named that. And while it might seem counterintuitive to not have Rand playing a larger role in his eponymous book, it makes sense considering where he is in the story and in his mind. Because all Rand is doing is traveling. He's fighting off occasional enemies, he's playing his flute, and he's existing in a state of what I think of as bipolar one-level mania, where he is borderline psychotic. He is not in a good place mentally, and certainly not in a place that is conducive to an effective inner narrative. So even if we got to spend a lot of time traveling with him, the things that he would tell us would not be very helpful in moving the story along. We get to spend a little bit of time on Rand's crazy train, And all it really tells us is that, okay, Rand's being chased occasionally by Shadowspawn. Sometimes people try to kill him. He needs more salt. He's being haunted in his dreams. And he sounds hella fucking crazy. So the fact that he's barely in The Dragon Reborn doesn't trouble me. We get plenty of the story throughout the entire series from his point of view. In fact, we've spent two books at this point, mostly in his head. And RJ needs to bring our other three main characters along. And I mean main characters as in how much we get percentage-wise of their point of view. Moraine, Nynaeve, Lon, Min, Elaine, Swan, all of them are definitely main characters, but RJ shows them to us mostly through other people's eyes. There are only four characters who have a percentage of the point of view into double digits. Rant has 20% of the word count in the stories and Matt Perrin and Egwene have 11 to 12% each of the rest of it. Everybody else in the series is in single digits. The most significant as far as point of view characters after that is Elaine coming in with about 8% of the word count. So absolutely Moraine's a main character, absolutely Nynaeve's a main character, but we know them more by how the other characters see them than by how they see themselves. And so we've had two books where we get to see a lot of Rand, how he perceives himself and how he sees the world. And we've gotten some of Perrin now, and we've gotten some of Egwene, and we've gotten to know them a decent bit and seen some of their struggles. We've only seen Matt how other people see him, which is not in a positive light, which is why everybody is like, they hate Dagger Matt, they hate Dagger Matt. But Dagger Matt has only actually been under the influence of the Dagger for a very narrow period of time. Otherwise, it's been shielded away from him by the One Power, and we just have Matt being perceived by his friends as a whiny shithead. Which, whatever, you know, he is kind of a whiny shithead. So it's nice for RJ to just take this time in this book to develop his three other main POV characters and give Rand a break and let him have his crazy, tumbling, manic, rapid cycling type thoughts, mostly to himself, and we just check in with him occasionally, so we can sympathize with him a bit and be like, damn, Ran, you're not doing so great. So as we get into the beginning of The Dragon Reborn, after we get our prologue in The Fortress of the Light, which mostly just sets us up for the fuckery that's going to go down in the two rivers in the next book, we get to see Perrin. And the character development that we get for Perrin is really, honestly, quite interesting. In The Great Hunt, Perrin used his wolf abilities quite a bit. He chooses to help Inktar with them. Rand, Loyal, and Huron disappear while everybody's hunting for the horn. You know, they get brought into the mirror world by Lanfear. Everybody wakes up in the morning and Inktar is like, What the fuck am I supposed to do now? How am I supposed to find the horn without my sniffer? And Perrin decides that he should probably step up because they need to find the horn and they need to find the dagger. It says, there was a way, perhaps, if he was willing to take it. He did not want to take it. He had been running away from it, but perhaps now he could no longer run. So he goes to Inktar and he tells him, so, look, I can talk to wolves. They will follow the dark friends for us. I have no fucking clue where Ran, Loyal, and Huron went. But I can have Feigned track for you. We can continue following the horn. And Inktara's like, honestly, I've heard of that before. I'll keep it between us. Let's fucking go. Heron is willing, however uncomfortable he is in his own skin, in the great hunt, in the name of duty, he is willing to make use of his abilities and use them to fight the shadow. Both because the horn absolutely cannot be in dark friend hands and because he cares about Matt and he doesn't want him to not have the dagger because he wants Matt to be healed. And so Parent spends a large portion of the great hunt using his abilities and doing it without any real hesitation. He thinks his way through with his careful thought is the way and solves a problem. He's like, there's no way else to track them. Uno can't find any tracks somebody has to do something, I have an ability, I can follow them. And he does. He uses the wolves first to track the Trollocs, and later when he, Matt, and Huron are tracking back and forth along Tome and Head as everybody's taking their turn looking for Padden Fane's trail, and they're checking through a village, Huron has finally found the trail, and they have to run out real fast as the white cloaks come in. Huron uses his abilities to get intelligence on the white cloaks, He asked the wolves, hey, will you go down and check it out so we know that they aren't following? It says, after a time, images came back to him, what the wolves saw, white cloaked men on horses crowding around the village, riding among the houses, riding around it, but none leaving, especially not westward. The wolves said all they smelled moving west was himself and two other two legs with three of the hard-footed tall ones. And of course, Jeff from Bornhall happens to see him as he's dashing out of the village, which sets up the White Cloak Fuckery in the Two Rivers as we see it beginning to build in the prologue of The Dragon Reborn. But, reluctantly at first, and then perfectly willingly, Perrin uses his abilities in the Great Hunt. But at the start of The Dragon Reborn, he is desperately resisting them. The first chapter starts out with him, Uno, and a bunch of the Shinerans waiting in the mountains for one of Moraine's agents who manages to inexplicably know where to come and find them. And he's sitting there on his horse and observing his surroundings, and the narrative is letting you know that it's early spring and kind of giving the description. You've had the Wheel of Time turns and ages come and pass, and it's narrowed down into where everybody is sitting on their horses waiting, and it says... He sniffed the wind without thinking. The smell of horse predominated in men and men's sweat. A rabbit had gone through those trees not long since, fear powering its run, but the fox on its trail had not killed there. He realized what he was doing and stopped it. You'd think I would get a stuffed nose with all this wind. He almost wished he did have one, and I wouldn't let Moraine do anything about it either. Something tickled the back of his mind. He refused to acknowledge it. Perrin, in the Great Hunt, would not want to block out smells. However self-conscious he was in his own skin, however uncomfortable he was with his powers, he made use of his ability. And we don't get a lot of descriptions, but whenever we're in his POV in the Great Hunt, he's using his hearing, he's using his sight and his sense of smell. And if the wolves had reached out to him, he would have talked to them, especially if they were making such an effort to reach him. So if taken at face value, you start The Dragon Reborn, and you're looking at it, and you're like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. The last book, he's using his powers. He's talking to the wolves, and now he's not? That doesn't make any fucking sense. And a person could take it as a lazy narrative mistake or lack of continuity, because there's no explanation of why it would be one thing and then the other. But RJ sometimes does things intentionally, but doesn't explain them. And so, if you assume this turn in Perrin was purposeful, take it upon yourself to ask, what changed? And think about what might make this turn of events absolutely realistic. Why would Perrin go from using his powers to not using them? Why is he suddenly so unwilling? Why is he suddenly trying to stop himself from even using his sense of smell? Why is he suddenly, dare I say, feeling dirty again, perhaps? So the last point of view from Perrin in the great hunt that we get is the scene where he, Matt, and Huron leave the village running from the white cloaks. They get back to Varen and they make the decision that five will ride forth. So he, Matt, Rand, Huron, and Inktar head into Falma to look for the horn. Matt fuels the dagger in High Lord Turek's house, and they head over the back wall, break into the house, and find the horn and the dagger. And Turek and a bunch of his soldiers confront them. And a guy reaches for the horn, and Matt just fucking cuts him on the back of the hand, and the guy dies horribly, all bloated and black, because the Logoth dagger is bad fucking news. And it says, You see, Yngtar said softly, we are no easy meat. Suddenly he leaped over the corpse toward the soldiers, still goggling at what was left of the man who had stood at their shoulders only moments before. "Shanawa!" he cried. Follow me! Huron leaped after him, and the soldiers fell back before them, the sounds of steel on steel rising. The Shanshan at the other end of the room started forward as Inktar moved, but then they were falling back too, before Matt's thrusting dagger even more than from the axe, Perrin swung with wordless snarls. The way this is written makes it sound like, if not for Matt's horrifying murder dagger, Perrin, snarling Perrin, Wolf-Eyed Perrin would be the most terrifying thing that these Shanshan had ever faced. Then Rand has his duel with Turok and manages to kill him. Everybody comes back in and it says, Matt still had the horn and his dagger, its blade darker than the ruby in its hilt. Perrin's axe was red too and he looked as if he might be sick at any moment. So, now the Dragon Reborn begins, and it has been four months since the events at Falma. Falma was probably early to mid-November, as far as we understand it, and now spring is coming, the snow is melting, even in the mountains, it's got to be about mid-March. So four months for whatever has been going on in Perrin's head to eat away at him. In later books, we get Perrin's accounts of how exhilarating he finds battle. He tells Elias that it makes him feel so alive, even as he's really uncomfortable and cringy and feels sick about the fact that he's got to like cut through men with his axe. He also just feels so intensely alive and excited about it. The sense of existential stress and danger has a certain something to it that's almost fun. Like, I wouldn't say that Perrin is the kind of guy who gets off on danger, and he certainly doesn't seek it. But when it comes his way, he's almost like, you know, fuck it, we ball, let's go. And we see him taking notice of that, starting in this book. Danger becomes thrilling to Perrin. When they find out that Samael is an alien... Heron mentions in his narrative that he's not frightened by the news. He thinks that he should be, but he's not. He feels excited and ready for something to happen, like wolves feel, before they kill. This early, Heron is finding fighting to be really exhilarating. The very night that the book begins, there's a Trolloc attack. They meet Moraine's agent and bring her to the camp of the Dragon Reborn. There's some fuckery that happens because Rand makes an earthquake. He loses control of Sidene and, uh, causes a bit of an earthquake. Then Perrin goes to sleep, and then he is awakened to wolves in his dreams, telling him that the Twisted Ones are coming. And he is super upset because Moraine's agent is a tinker woman, and Perrin feels very protective of the tinkers because he likes the idea of the Way of the Leaf, even though he knows it's an untenable belief in a world where there is actual evil and creatures that cannot be reasoned with and conflicts that cannot be avoided. True evil must be fought, and so Perrin thinks that the Tinkers are idiots, but the idea of never harming anyone or anything is super appealing to him because he is an essentially gentle person, and so he feels very protective of them. Min has this vision that the Tinker Woman whose name is Leia, is going to die. And Perrin is really fucked up about it. The Trollocs attack, and Leia actually tries to save him from a murderle. She tries to grab the murderle's leg, and the Myrtle just whacks her with its sword. Perrin kills the murderle. And it says, Wolf rolled over him, enveloped him. Letting Leia back down, Perrin took up his axe, blade gleaming wetly. His eyes shone as he raced down the rocky slope. He was young bull. So, when fighting men, I'm guessing his feelings aren't quite as primal. Because men aren't like an enemy to the death, the way that Trollocs and Murrel are for wolves. Um, at least, you don't see it when he's fighting the White Cloaks after freeing Gaul from the cage. But we do know that he finds the fighting incredibly thrilling and that it deeply troubles him because he is such a fundamentally gentle person. And so along with just the idea of being able to talk to wolves, making him feel dirty, it feels dirty to want to fight, to want that excitement or to even experience that excitement feels wrong to him. And he doesn't like it. He does not like his acts. And I'm figuring if he's so deeply troubled by it, And if when he was fighting the Shanshan, he was snarling at them like it says in the text, maybe he was having a similar primal taking over because he wasn't holding himself in check the way that he has started to do in Book 3. The Perrin that we see in The Dragon Reborn is a Perrin struggling to stay contained. Egwene has a vision when she's dreamwalking of Perrin basically chained to a column. He's holding the chain in his own hands. He's barely allowing himself to sleep, constantly held in check because he is so afraid of his powers and the potential loss of himself. He's so frightened of it. So I'm thinking, you know, we have no inner narrative to tell us what happened. Why did he go from gladly using his powers to wanting to not use them at all, refusing to listen to the wolves to the point where they were desperately trying to tell him, yo, there are Trollocs in the mountains. They were insistently scratching inside of his head and being like, hey, 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 we've got something to tell you. And he refused to listen. He couldn't let himself. He could not relax and let them in. What happened? My best guess is that whatever went down when he was fighting the Shanshan, he must have had some kind of just savage primal emotion. It was his first time fighting and killing men since he fought the White Cloaks in Hawkwing's Steading, and I'm guessing something must have overtaken him, much in the way that it overtook him when the White Cloaks killed Hopper, and he didn't like it. He did not like what happened to him, and so he must have spent four months thinking never again never again. I won't let them in again. I won't let them make me like them. I don't like the savagery that I felt when I killed those Shanshan. I don't like feeling how excited I felt. The fact that they feared me, that I snarled when I fought. It's probably because I was letting the wolves talk to me. It was probably because I used my abilities. I probably lost some of my humanity while I was doing it. It was so risky. It was so dangerous. I had no choice at the time, but I don't have to do it again. I will never do it again. I'm just a man. I can use my hands. I just, I have regular abilities. There are other ways. I'm not going to let myself fall into this trap. Because whatever he felt while he was fighting and killing those Shanshan in Lord Turek's house was disturbing to him. Maybe he wanted to throw his axe aside and use his teeth there too. That would have been too disturbing. Feeling eager and excited is bad enough for someone like Perrin because this Perrin right here hasn't come to accept that that's just how he reacts to battle and that there's nothing wrong with that. When you're in danger of your life, it's okay that your adrenaline has kicked up and that you're a little amped up and that kind of excitement, if it helps you stay alive, you don't need to beat yourself up for it. But mentally becoming the wolf without pity or mercy and feeling almost like savage joy, Perrin doesn't like that because Perrin fundamentally is a sweetheart and the divergence in himself troubles him so much. Maybe during Flicker Flicker, he experienced lives where he actually lost himself in the wolves lost himself and didn't know that it was a choice he had made on that divergent timeline. We learn later in The Gathering Storm or The Towers of Midnight, we learn that when he's trying to express to Hopper how afraid he is of losing himself, and Hopper just doesn't get it, he doesn't understand what he's talking about, we learn that running with the wolves in the way that Noam, the wolf brother that we meet in Jara and The Dragon Reborn, is a choice. You don't lose yourself to the wolves. You give yourself to them. But maybe while they traveled by the portal stone, he saw himself in other lives, and he just saw Perrin the wolf. You know, Perrin who was young bull. Perrin who had a mind filled with racing wolf-like thoughts, much the same way that Noam does when Perrin tries to reach out to him like he would to a wolf. But he didn't know that that Perrin, that wolf-like Perrin, made the choice somewhere along that divergent timeline that got him to that point and so maybe seeing that was really troubling. Maybe he has a memory of that or maybe it's just that at the start of the Dragon Reborn he's had four months in the mountains with lots and lots of wolves around getting lots of brushes against his mind and at this point his dreams are already starting to get weird. He hasn't heard about the world of dreams yet. And I don't even know that he's touched Teleron Riyad yet, because he hasn't had his first dream with Hopper in it. But when he goes to sleep that night, before the Trollocs come, he's stripping down to his underwear and basically sleeping in the freezing cold to try to keep from sleeping too deeply, because he's already had some manner of fuckery in his dreams, and he's afraid to let himself get too comfortable, because if he sleeps too deeply, he loses control of himself. Perrin starts this book still incredibly uncomfortable in his own skin. He's still self-conscious about his eyes. He's self-conscious about the fact that the Shinerans tease him for his youth. And at this point, he's likely self-conscious about his ties to Rand. As Perrin and the Shinerans are waiting for Moraine's agent, and they're out in the woods, it says, He sometimes wondered at the way they deferred to him and followed his lead. It was as if they thought he had some special right, some knowledge hidden from them. Or maybe it's just my friends, he thought wryly. He's got this whole sense of being an imposter, like he's elevated to a position that he doesn't deserve, like a whole famous friend syndrome. We know that one of parents to in talents is leadership. People want to follow him. People choose to defer to him from the former elders of his village to queens. People make the choice to defer to him. All kinds of people feel comfortable following his lead. He is instinctively a leader in many ways, even though he swears that he's not. So it likely would never occur to him that the Shinerans defer to him because he deserves it. Of course it wouldn't occur to him. He has self-esteem issues. He's very self-conscious He doesn't think he's nearly as good or worthy as he actually is. He thinks he has certain talents. He knows that he's a good blacksmith. And I think he knows that he's a nice person. But I don't know that he knows much else about himself that is good and worthy. And that's a shame because there is so much about Perrin that is worthwhile. He really is a sweet and kind and wonderful person. And he earned these men's respect. He earned their respect while they were hunting the horn. He stepped up. He went to Inktar and risked everything by telling him his secret. He was terrified that Inktar would think that he was a dark friend. He had no way to know how he would take the information, and he had very little else to give him should Inktar have had questions, because Perrin is still iffy about whether being able to talk to wolves is somehow a way of being marked by the dark one. Moraine never gave him a real answer about that. She never really knew if it was or not, because there was no predicting the wolf thing happening with him. There was no predicting three Tavirin, let alone that those other Tavirin would have powers. She was expecting one taviran, a Tavirin channeler, not two others, one who would be shouting in the old tongue, and the other that would end up having glowing yellow eyes and an appetite for really rare meat so the fact that he stepped up and rode at Inktar's side Inktar showed him great respect and listened to him he tracked the dark friends and tracked them successfully he had Inktar's approval the deferral of these Shineran soldiers to Perrin is quite logical and Perrin is a steady person, you know? Sure, he is the Lord Dragon's friend and someone the Lord Dragon listens to, and obviously that would also make him someone that they might defer to, but it's not only that he is worth listening to. He is worth following, even this early. Honestly, he's ready for leadership much sooner in some ways than Rand is, though Rand did do a really good job in the last book, stepping up. But Perrin is ready, just as a whole, ready for the responsibility sooner. It says here, talking about Uno. He turned to Perrin. Do you see anything yet? His tone was a little gruffer than he might have used with a commander put over him by the king of Shinar or the lord of Valdara, yet there was something in it of readiness to do whatever Perrin suggested. But Perrin is kind of a dummy, and he's just like, oh, they must follow me because of Rand. Perrin has chosen to stay with Rand, and realistically, you know, he had two choices unless he wanted to stay all by himself in the leftover chaos and fuckery that was tome and head while the dragon sworn erupted all around him, so he could stay with Rand, or he could go with Matt and the girls, but going with Matt and the girls would not have been an unreasonable choice, they were a very small party, and they could have used him, frankly, Huron was not an incapable male escort, but he was hardly intimidating, and I'm guessing that Matt didn't look very imposing when he was skeletally ill. And while the women can absolutely take care of themselves when push comes to shove, showing your use of the one power is often not a wise thing to do. And in many places, women are seen as easy prey. So having men there to discourage people from starting shit is helpful. It's the same reason women often have men record their voicemail, a preventative measure. So Perrin, his beefy, axe-wielding self, would have been a very useful asset on the journey with Nynaeve, Elaine, Egwene, Varen, Matt, and Huron. But Perrin feels tied to Rand. It says in the text that a journey by Portalstone convinced him that his life was bound to Rand's. And so he chose Rand. And I wonder what their relationship was like over the winter. I feel like Perrin empathizes with Rand a lot. And he identifies with him a lot. And Perrin is a thoughtful person who works hard to think about what things are like for other people. He's very empathetic and so I can see him looking at the way the Shinerins treat Rand and imagining what that must be like to have people who weren't particularly impressed by you. People who are so fucking hardcore that they make you feel like a giant wimp even with your blacksmith shoulders or Rand's got those hardcore abs. But like the Shinerans are so extra they're pretty metal and those men are basically being worshipful and no longer even treating you as a human being because you've basically become like a god to them and so you can't even connect with them anymore and it leaves you feeling so isolated and alone And they can't even understand how unintentionally cruel they're being to you just by pushing you away and forcing you to be an other and not accepting you as one of them anymore because they've elevated you above them and Perrin looking at that and seeing how much that hurts Rand and how bad it would be for him and understanding that because he would know how bad it would be for himself and so I see Perrin working very hard to try to be there for Rand and I'm sure that Rand could probably be very difficult. I'm sure he was kind of a grouchy asshole. But I also think that Perrin would make a real effort to just try to talk as much about normal things and just be really chill with him and make jokes and stuff. And I think that they probably would have done an okay job of counterbalancing the Shinerans as much as they could between him and Min and Loyal. Because Loyal doesn't give a shit that Rand can channel and Min is just always making fun of him. And you get... Ran's internal narrative later on thinking about men and. He always thinks about how he could relax and be himself around her. And so I'm imagining these four months of parent, loyal, and min helping Rand just by being kind of relaxed and fun around him and trying to help him chill out because they just treat him like he's human. They treat him like he's still kind of a dumbass and make an effort to not be impressed by him, whether they actually aren't impressed by him or whether they're managing a good facade of trying not to see him as he has changed. They make fun of him, and or they're just nice to him, and they're just a support system that he desperately needs. So, Perrin and the Shinerans get back with Leia, the Tinker Woman, and they send her off to Moraine's hut, and Perrin goes to hang out with Loyal and Min. And so, Leia goes into Moraine's hut, and Rand comes out, and it says, He has been arguing with Moraine again, Min said quietly, all day this time. Perrin was not surprised, yet he still felt a small shock. Arguing with an Aes Sedai, all the childhood tales came back to him. Aes Sedai, who made thrones and nations dance to their hidden strings. Aes Sedai, whose gift always had a hook in it, whose price was always smaller than you could believe, yet always turned out to be greater than you could imagine. Aes Sedai whose anger could break the ground and summon lightning. Some of the stories were untrue, he knew now. At the same time, they did not tell the half. I had better go to him, he said. After they argue, he always needs someone to talk to. I can't imagine that Rand did very much relaxing over the winter, even though he had plenty of time to recover from the wound in his side and the general, like, exhaustion that that would have wrought upon his body and just to gather himself in general. But any relaxing that he did was probably thanks to the kindness and the support of Perrin, Min, and Loyal. And Perrin knowing that Rand always needs someone to talk to after he and Moraine argue means that I'm guessing Perrin has gone and done a whole bunch of very supportive talks with Rand over the course of the winter. Perrin really strongly identifies with Rand. It says, For a moment, Perrin simply looked at him. A man who could channel the One Power. A man doomed to go mad from the taint on Sidene. A man, a thing. Everyone was taught to loathe and fear from childhood, only it was hard to stop seeing the boy he had grown up with. How do you just stop being somebody's friend? Perrin has never been super troubled by ran channeling, because he knows what it feels like to have this sense of uncleanliness. He feared that the wolves were the Dark One's influence for a while, and he is currently terrified fighting off what he thinks is his own form of insanity. And he knows what it's like to lose yourself and hurt someone without meaning to. Which seems to be the essence of what it is to be a male channeler. You go crazy and you hurt people. Or that is what people think of when they think of male channelers. That's their M.O. Because that is what the breaking of the world was. That's what Luce Theron did. He went nuts and he killed his family. And so that's what people think of when they think of male channelers. And... While obviously not everyone who suffers the kind of psychosis and insanity that the taint on in invokes is going to do violent acts, if you lose the ability to control the one power, you can hurt people by accident. And I feel like the majority of people with sidene induced psychosis who do things that are unintentionally harmful aren't hitting people with lightnings or fires the way Luce there in Telamon does in the Eye of the World's Prologue, or the way the man in the glass columns is described to Rand ancestors like he's zorching the singing daishane who are trying to remind him of who he was while the people flee the city but when you're psychotic to the point that you have had a total break with reality and you have access to powerful forces that control the universe if you can move mountains and effortlessly unmake things and you're not thinking and not noticing and you're just not doing so great mentally you're gonna cause harm and hurt people without meaning to Like when Fedwin Moore finally has his break with reality and Min has to convince him to play with blocks because he is going to build a tower and basically brick her up to keep her safe. You know, that's not someone being murderous. That's someone being helpful without understanding that, no, your help will kill me. So it is very hard for Perrin to fear or loathe Rand because he sees way too much of himself in him. And while he may not be able to move mountains with his power, to hurt someone is to hurt someone is to hurt someone in Perrin's eyes. Perrin cares about Rand, and he feels tied up in his fate. He feels responsible for him. He feels like it's his job to help him in any way he can. It says... I understand you were arguing with Moraine again. The same thing? Rand drew a deep, ragged breath. Don't we always argue about the same thing? They're down there, on Elmeth Plain, and the light alone knows where else. Hundreds of them. Thousands. They declared for the dragon reborn because I raised that banner. Because I let myself be called the dragon. Because I could see no other choice. And they're dying. Fighting, searching, and praying for the man who was supposed to lead them dying, and I sit here safe in the mountains all winter. I- I owe them something. You think I like it? Heron swung his head in irritation. You take whatever she says to you, Rand grated. You'd never stand up to her. Much good it has done you standing up to her. You have argued all winter, and we have sat here like lumps all winter. Heron feels tangentially responsible for the dragon-sworn. They may not have declared for him, but he is the kind of person where if you support a cause, you're beholden to the fallout, good or bad. Rand got put into this awkward position, and so he proclaimed himself, and it set off this massive fuckery that took over the whole northwest of the continent of Randland, and Perrin agrees that they're setting up in the mountains safe while all of that is going crazy, and he doesn't like it any more than Rand does, and he doesn't think it's right any more than Rand does, and he feels like they should probably do something about it, just like Rand does. He's Rand's ally, and he's Rand's support, and he's also his friend, and more than that, he knows that Rand needs him, and that maybe a lot of stuff rests on that. When Rand runs away, Moraine asks Perrin and Loyal both if they'll go after him, and Loyal's automatically like, fuck yeah, I've gotta write my book, I can't write my book if I'm not around Rand, And it says, Perrin was slower to answer. Rand was his friend, whatever he had become in the forging, and there was that near certainty of their futures being linked, though he would have avoided that part of it if he could. It has to be done, doesn't it? He said finally, I will come. Perrin is glad to go for friendship, and because he cares about Rand. He's less happy to go for duty. He doesn't want the responsibility. He's over it. He wants to go home. Mina asked him if he wanted to go home and he told her all the fucking time. He's sick of it and he's angry with Moraine because he feels like she has interfered with their lives and complicated things. And he's not as ridiculous as 90 blaming Moraine, like any of this is actually her fault, but because Moraine is a control freak and won't let go of information and just generally does not deal well with these people... He can be mad at her about it and feel like he doesn't want the responsibility and be very much the reluctant conscript. And at this point, he's the reluctant and jaded conscript who is really fucking over this and not prepared to toe the line anymore. So he'll go after Rand for friendship, and he understands that there is a duty here, but he is not happy about it. He's struggling with trauma at this point, really quite a lot of trauma. When he and the others go to pick up the Tinker Woman and he is talking to her, he's really unloading on her because he is so over the bullshit with the Tinkers. He likes the idea of the Way of the Leaf, but he thinks it's ludicrous, and so he's basically just like, Yeah, I'd really like to see you face Trollocs and have the strength of your belief keep you alive. It says... She gave him a penetrating look, and yet you are not happy with your weapons. How did she know that? He shook his head irritably, shaggy hair swaying. The creator made the world, he muttered, not I. I must live the best I can in the world the way it is. So sad for one so young, she said softly. Why so sad? I should be watching, not talking, he said curtly. You won't thank me if I get you lost. He heeled Stepper forward enough to cut off any further conversation, but he could feel her looking at him. Sad? I'm not sad, just light. I don't know. There ought to be a better way, that's all. The itching tickle came again at the back of his head, but absorbed and ignoring Leia's eyes on his back, he ignored that too. Heron just wants to go home, but he knows that he can't, and so he chooses to follow Rand. Once Perrin makes the choice to follow Rand, Min gets a whole bunch of visions, because this is a turning point for Perrin. Not just in this book, kicking off his arc in the story that is The Dragon Reborn, but in the next stage of his journey, as he begins to become the person that he will be. And Perrin is very adamant that he does not want to hear any of the visions that Min has for him, which is understandable, He is one of those prefer-not-to-know type of people. He is not someone who would get his fortune told. He is the sort of person who would prefer that his future remain a mystery. And it makes sense that he's so averse to any foreknowledge and the ensuing anxiety it might bring. Especially because he's Teveran, and he's dealing with a lot of really fucked-up, heavy-duty shit. Horrible monsters try to murder him. The shadow feels entitled to steal his soul. His dreams are invaded by evil things. He's got a lot going on for someone who's barely 20. And so it seems very natural that he does not want to know the things that men can tell him. But she feels like she has to once he says that he will go after Rand and she immediately sees a whole bunch of visions. And so she tells him, I see an Aielman in a cage. I see a Tawatha'an with a sword. I see a falcon and a hawk both perching on your shoulder and run from a beautiful woman. And I suppose that the way that Min's visions work, she may not have actually seen the face of the beautiful woman. So maybe she couldn't have said, you need to run from this beautiful woman and she will be Lanfear. Because Min has met Lanfear. She met her at the end of the Great Hunt. And I'm guessing never told anybody else about it? Which... Guess I can see being freaked out enough to want to keep it to yourself and nobody ever tells anybody anything in the Wheel of Time, so it's not utterly surprising. And maybe she felt nobody would believe her. I'm not exactly sure what her rationale would have been for not at least telling Moraine, because of anyone Min is one of the most forthcoming people with Moraine and has one of the most positive relationships with her. So you'd think she would have told her about Lanfear? And maybe she did, but Who knows, if she did, Moraine would never pass it on to anybody else. Up until this point in the books, Heron has had agency, and he has made choices for himself, but always very hesitantly or at the behest of others. And generally, when he makes them, he lacks confidence. The choice to follow Rand was one that he made with little wavering, but it's not the kind of decision that screams out agency. Moraine asks, Would you come? And he's like, Okay. And while he had other paths available to him, he could probably have gone to Tarvalin with Min, and he could have gone with all of the Shinerans down to Jahana. Realistically, where else is Perrin gonna go but after Rand? So it is not the type of decision that really declares someone the master of their own destiny. That said, once he makes the choice to follow, he becomes much more confident And it's not just because Rand leaves and Perrin takes his place as the rebellious one, getting really mouthy with Moraine and standing up to her. Their relationship goes from Perrin avoiding her to constantly butting heads with her. But along with that, he stands up for other people. When they're in Jara and Simeon, the man whose brother is the wolf brother timidly, is like, I knew she could help my brother, Perrin advocates for him. When Lon, as Fa'iel, follows them downriver and they're in Ilion, and she's basically saying, I know there's nothing that you'll actually do to keep me from going with you, and, you know, frankly, I don't like presumptuous people, and the presumption of her joining them on their trip is such that I would not blame Moraine if she tied Fail to the docks with the One Power and left her there. But Lon coldly says, you want a fucking bet? And Perrin calls him out for it, and is just like, dude, you don't need to fucking do that. That is out of line. Perrin asks questions of people. He's in a group with an Aes Sedai, and a Warder, and an Ogier, and then it's just him. And he basically gets assumed to be a servant a lot when they go to different inns on their trip, as they're traveling through Gjeldin and Altara toward the Minetharendril, where Moraine has to decide... Do we go downriver to Ilion, or do we continue cross-country as we chase after Rand? And so Perrin, who would have been quiet before, who would have kind of kept to himself and deferred to others and not drawn attention to himself, that Perrin that we knew before is gone. Perrin opens his mouth like, hey, have you seen And Moraine and Lon or like, shut the fuck up. But he doesn't really. He might alter his questions a little, and maybe stop flat out asking, Have you seen this nutty ginger? But Perrin continues to make inquiries and assert himself. And Remen, Perrin asks the innkeeper, Why do you have an Aeoman in a cage? basically implying that it's fucked up. He's making a moral judgment when he asks, even if he doesn't say it flat out, and he does not hesitate to speak up and be insistent and advocate and stand up for people. He has been growing this whole time, and now he is starting to blossom. He is not backing down, and he is morphing into implacable Perrin. He is having his becoming, and he is becoming Don't Give a Fuck Perrin. Despite this, Perrin doesn't really harden quite yet. It will take serious tragedy to harden Perrin, because he is such a nice person. He's prone to second-guessing himself about whether he might be in the wrong. Perrin would be the kind of person who would write letters to the Am I the Asshole column on Reddit, and everybody would be like, how could you even ask that question? You were obviously not the asshole. When Simeon is really nice to him, you know, Perrin realizes that everybody in Jara is going to know about Noam's yellow eyes, and therefore, rather than an oddity, his eyes will be instantly recognizable and people will know that there is some connection to wolves, even if they think that it was all a gnome's head. So Perrin asks, hey, could you bring me something in my room? And Simeon's like, yeah, I'll bring you your food. I will bring you wash water. You will not need to leave. You can stay in your room until it's time to go. And Perrin feels really guilty because his snap judgment when he first looks at Simeon when they first arrive is, that fucker looks like a frog, which people think things like that. People make associations, and sometimes they're not the kindest. I mean, who doesn't think that Mitch McConnell looks like a turtle? But, you know, Mitch McConnell is not the kind of person who would bring you your meals in your room and take away your chamber pot and be super nice to you. You know, Mitch McConnell would steal your health care and expect you to live for a year on $600 and then tell you it's your own fault that you're sick and poor, and so you don't have to feel bad for thinking that Mitch McConnell looks like a turtle, but Perrin feels bad for thinking that Simeon looks like a frog, especially after Simeon is so kind to him. And when they're in Remen, and he leaves the inn to go freak Gaul, Lord Orban, the hunter for the horn who captured Gaul and ended up getting wounded in the process, is talking and telling the tall tale of how he and his oathsmen fought twenty Aeol and killed most of them, but gee, the survivors must have carried all the bodies away, and they lost six retainers and captured one. So Perrin is listening as he's leaving the inn, and he's hearing the last bit of the story that Orban is telling. And Orban says... "'I drew my sword and dug my heels into lion's ribs.' Perrin gave a start before he realized the man meant his horse was named Lion. Wouldn't put it past him to say he was riding a lion. He felt a little ashamed. Just because he did not like the man was no reason to suppose the hunter would take his boasting that far. Perrin has a powerful sense of kindness and fair play and decency, and that kindness and fair play and decency lead him to make the choice to free Gaul. He doesn't give a shit if this Aeolman killed some people. You know, he doesn't care. His interaction with Orban has let him know enough of the type of man that he is that he doesn't care. It's like there are things that you do and things you don't do, and you don't dangle someone in a cage so kids can throw rocks at them. That crosses a line. And the thing with Gaul is a self-fulfilling prophecy. Because Min sees a vision and tells him this is a turning point in your life. But she never says that he has to do anything. The Aielman in the cage could simply be a symbol. Like it's a symbol of a place, Remen, where something significant will happen. And you know that you're at that place because you will see the Aielman in a cage. And that's a reading of the pattern that lets you know time and place. At the place where the Aielman will hang in the cage, at the time that he is there, a significant thing will happen in your life. And the significant thing that happens in his life is that he meets the falcon there. So something fateful occurs in the sense that he meets the falcon, or he draws the falcon to him. But Perrin determines that the vision means that action is required. He decides that the Aiel in the cage means that he has to do something. It says the ayil in the cage. What Min saw was always important, but how? What was he supposed to do? I could have stopped those children throwing rocks. I should have. It was no use telling himself the adults would certainly have told him to go on about his business, that he was a stranger and Remen, and the Aiel was none of his concern. I should have tried. No answers came to him, so we went back to the beginning and patiently worked through it once more, then again and again. Still, he found nothing except regret for what he had not done. Maybe the vision does mean that Perrin must do something. Maybe his shoulders are not enough to attract the falcon on their own. Despite the fact that he, Lon, Moraine, and Loyal provided such a strange and attractive trail that Fagil's interest as a hunter was piqued, she was staring at him as he went up the stairs in the inn when they first arrived, so he had her attention before he ever did anything with gall. But perhaps that wasn't enough, and it took freeing Gaul and the aftermath to convince Faiyil to follow him. As they're on the boat, it says, Are you following me? You were staring at me back at the inn. Why? And why didn't you tell them what you saw? An Ogier, she said, staring at the river, is obviously an Ogier, and the others were not much more difficult to figure out. I managed a much better look inside Lady Alice's hood than Orban did, and her face makes that stone-faced fellow a warder. The light burned me if I'd want that one angry with me. Does he always look like that, or did he eat a rock for his last meal? Anyway, that left only you. I do not like things I cannot account for. Once again he considered tossing her over the side, seriously this time but Remen was now only a blotch of light well behind them in the darkness, and no telling how far it was to shore. She seemed to take his silence as an urging to go on. So there I have not She looked around, then dropped her voice, though the closest crewman was working a sweep ten feet away. An Aes a warder, an Ogier, and you, a countryman by first look at you. Her tilted eyes rose to study his yellow ones intently. He refused to look away, and she smiled. Only you free a caged Da'ielman, hold a long talk with him, then help him chop a dozen white cloaks into sausage. I assume you do this regularly. You certainly looked as if it were nothing out of the ordinary for you. I sense something strange in a party of travellers such as yours, and strange trails are what hunters look for. So perhaps his shoulders, however delicious—I have a thing for shoulders—might not have been enough. Perhaps his choice to do something was necessary, and the vision of the Aielman in the cage was not just a picture to describe both a place and a time. Heron certainly decided that it wasn't, and that's significant, because despite his propensity for introspection, Heron is a person of action. Heron is a person who thinks everything through to a logical point and determines, okay, this is what we do. And so he determined that Min's vision because they always mean something, must mean something is expected from him. He thought it through to that point, and then he made a choice. And for the first time, Perrin's being Taviran, his way of affecting the people around him and the consequences of his agency, ripple out and wrest control of the situation from the grown-up's hands. And what he did was obviously the right thing to do, But I also think that the choice was a cusp for him, because he thought it through, and he thought it through, and he was like, what should I have done? I could have stopped them. And then he goes back to the beginning, what should I have done? You know, I could have stopped them, but I didn't. People would have told me to shut up. People would have told me to mind my own business. And just going back and keep doing this cycle over and over, and then finally getting away from the what should I have done, because you can't change anything with shoulds and then being like, what do I do? And at that point, he has reached this cusp of, rather than being worried about people are going to tell me, it's not my concern, this isn't my place, I'm a stranger here, I don't get to decide. He decides, there's right, there's wrong. This is wrong, I'm going to do what I want. And he begins this massive step, his sort of mental or psychological leveling up into parent who does not give a fuck, even the parent up in the mountains, the parent of only a few weeks before, would have wanted to curl up inside and die at the idea of causing a fuss of engaging in actions where people would point out and be like, That's not your place, you're being offensive to our customs. This is what we do to people who invade or kill or come in and hurt people." This Ae'il killed six retainers of Lord Orban and Lord Gan, you know, and we're waiting for a magistrate. We're keeping him there for whatever reason. Who knows why or how long they were going to keep him up there, what they were doing, if they were going to leave him there until he died or what. But Perrin has reached this point where he's like, he's going to do what he's going to do, and he doesn't care. And he changes. And it's a change far beyond his eyes turning yellow and being able to talk to wolves, and it's kind of beautiful, it says, hooking a leg around the heavy upright, he heaved on the rope, hoisting the cage enough to gain a little slack, the way the rope jerked told him the man in the cage had finally moved, but he was in too much of a hurry to stop and tell him what he was doing, the slack let him unwind the rope from around the stubs, still bracing himself with his leg around the upright, He quickly lowered the cage, hand over hand, to the paving blocks. The Aiel was looking at him now, studying him silently. Perrin said nothing. When he got a good look at the cage, his mouth tightened. If a thing was made, even a thing like this, it should be made well. The entire front of the cage was a door on rude hinges made by a hasty hand, held by a good iron lock on a chain as badly wrought as the cage. He fumbled the chain around until he found the worst link then jammed the thick spike on his axe through it. A sharp twist of his wrist forced the link open. In seconds, he separated the chain, rattled it free, and swung open the front of the cage. The Aiel sat there, knees yet under his chin, staring at him. "'Well?' Heron whispered hoarsely. "'I opened it, but I'm not going to bloody carry you.' He looked hastily around the night-dark square. Still nothing moved, but he still had the feel of eyes watching. "'You were strong, Wetlander.' The Aeel did not move beyond working his shoulders. It took three men to hoist me up there. And now you bring me down. Why? I don't like seeing people in cages, Perrin whispered. He wanted to go. The cage was open, and those eyes were watching. But the Aeel was not moving. If you do a thing, do it right. Will you get out of there before somebody comes? The Aiel grasped the frontmost overhead bar of the cage heaved himself out into his feet in one motion, then half hung there, supporting himself with his grip on the bar. He would have been nearly a head taller than Perrin, standing straight. He glanced at Perrin's eyes. Perrin knew how they must shine, burnish to gold in the moonlight, but he did not mention them. I have been in there since yesterday, Wetlander. He sounded like Lon, not that their voices or accents were anything alike, but the Aiel had the same unruffled coolness, that same calm sureness. It will take a moment for my legs to work. I am Gaul of the Imran Sept of the sharad at wetlander. I am Cheyenne Matal, a stone dog. My water is yours. Well, I am Peranabara, of the two rivers. I'm a blacksmith. The man was out of the cage. He could go now. Only, if anyone came along before Gaul could walk, he would be right back into the cage unless they killed him. And either way, that would waste Perrin's work. Heron doesn't care at this point, he doesn't care about opinions, he doesn't care about fallout, he doesn't care about offending the townsfolk, and he doesn't care about Moraine being mad, he just doesn't want his effort wasted. And then the white cloaks come and they have to fight, and we get no further inner narrative where Perrin agonizes over killing them, like he endlessly tortured himself about killing white cloaks in the steading where Hawkwing's statue was. And while we don't get internal torment over the shan'chen that he killed at the end of the Great Hunt, I feel like the only way that his resistance to the wolves is logical is if he was fucked up about how excited and savage he felt growling at the shan'chen while he was fighting them. And so the fact that he kills these white cloaks with Gaul pretty effortlessly, he's admittedly grateful that Gaul kills most of them. There's like 12 white cloaks and it sounds like Gaul takes out about 8 of them and Perrin gets 4. He's glad that Gaul is responsible for taking out most of them because he's got an axe, and an axe makes really horrible wounds. Like, if you've ever cut any firewood or anything, you know axes are wedge-shaped, and they fucking split stuff, and you get a lot of destruction with minimal force. So Parent hates the way the axe makes wounds, and he's glad that Gaul killed most of them, but he doesn't dwell on it again. Even when Zareen-slash-Fayil says, Oh yeah, and then you chop a dozen white cloaks into sausage, I assume, you do th- I assume you do this often. His only real reaction is, Oh, you didn't tell all the townspeople? You didn't raise the alarm and say, Oh yeah, the dude who killed all the white cloaks, he's on the boat. That's the only thing he has to say about it. And then when Gaul says that he is looking for he who comes with the dawn, parents, just like, Oh yeah, he's going to tear. In his eyes, he and Gaul are allies. He's not Moraine. He hates the fact that Moraine is so secretive, so he freely gives the information, and that is a habit that he continues as he becomes a leader. In Remen, Moraine was waiting for Lon's scouting report to determine whether they were going to go down river or cross-country, and Perrin's actions made the choice for her. And maybe that was the pattern determining that Ran needed to be a few more days ahead of them. And Perrin is regretful that Moraine is upset because nobody wants to piss off an Aes Sedai. But he thought his way through very systematically with his careful thought as the way to a logical conclusion. And at that point, what will be, must be. Moraine is a soldier. And however disgusted she was by Gal being in the cage... She would not have done anything about it because she has a mission, and she will not risk endangering it for anything. Perrin, rebel and reluctant conscript that he is, isn't held in by those constraints. Freeing Gaul was the right thing to do, and the consequences that came from that at that point for the new Perrin, the Perrin that stands up for people, the Perrin that opens his mouth, the Perrin who advocates and asks questions this Perrin who does not give a fuck as far as he's concerned he's sorry that she's mad but you know what the wheel weaves as the wheel wills i hope you've enjoyed this episode of podcast of the dragon i honestly really enjoy Perrin's story arc in this book and seeing him change and become someone new. I'm not a big fan of Fayil, but even so, it's fun to hear from him and see what he goes through. It's good to be back making content. Um, I had a good time on my hiatus, and I learned how to do a whole bunch of stuff, including record and audacity, but I am glad to be back and talking to you people. You can find me on Twitter at WarderGrey, that's Grey with an E, all of my other links are in the show notes, including the link to my Patreon, if you want to go there and help me out. If you could rate and review my show, that would mean a lot to me. I'd appreciate it if you could also tell a friend about me. If you have a friend that likes Wheel of Time and is interested in a Wheel of Time podcast that's a little bit different. If you're into cool Discord, you should check out Watt Trivia and Games. If you want to play some really cool games and hang out with some fun people... And you should definitely check out the Watt fandom and calendar discord if you want to find other Wheel of Time content creators. There are a ton of us now. My music is by Kevin MacLeod. I'm the Grey Warder, and if I decided that Men's vision meant that I had to free the Aielman in the cage, I'd have to get loyal to help me, because I have weak little arms.